Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Paul Herrick joins us today. He is professor of philosophy at Shoreline Community College in Washington State. He's the author of textbooks on logic and Socratic thinking. He has a new philosophical study from Notre Dame Press entitled Philosophy, Reasoned Belief, and Faith, an introduction. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Herrick. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for your interest in my book. And I enjoyed meeting you at the ISI conference the other day and talking with you. It was a, it was a, it was a good session. You say that, you, and, and this is very much oriented toward, uh, toward students, young, young Americans, uh, philosophy for them with faith, issues of faith. You say that students should know a few things about philosophy before you, you dive into the texts, general things about the philosophical manner, the outlook, the, the orientation. One of them has to do with the nature of myth, specifically what, may, what must be understood about myth? Well, the point I make in that, that's a, going back to the very beginning of the book, uh, the first unit is titled, Three Things to Know Before You Dive Into Philosophy. And you've hit the nail on the head with your comment. Uh, philosophy uh, begins with questions that uh, human beings have always asked. In every civilization, we find people wondering what the meaning of life is, why we're here, where the world came from, was it made by a god or a gods, what is truth, what is justice. And uh, as I point out at the beginning, humanity's earliest attempts at answering these deep worldview questions, extremely fundamental questions, uh, appear in the ancient myths. And every civilization in, in its ancient period uh, employed myths to answer questions. And uh, the problem with myths, according to the first philosophers in history, was that the, uh, they offered answers to the fundamental questions of life, uh, but those answers weren't based on reason. They weren't based on evidence. So, for instance, in the ancient uh, Greek myth of Pandora's box, you know, you have a myth purporting to explain why the world contains suffering, and it offers an answer, but the answer isn't based on evidence. There's no evidence that the answer is true, and no reasons are given for thinking the answer is true. So the first philosophers uh, in the historical record were individuals in ancient Greece, Thales, 
of Miletus was the first, and they rejected the myths of their society on the grounds that they weren't substantiated. They weren't based on reason and argument. And they, after rejecting the myths, they proceeded to try to answer fundamental questions on the basis of reasoned argument. And so the first philosopher on record, Thales, he proposed a theory of the universe, and he gave uh, at least seven different lines of reasoning in support of his theory, reasoning that anyone could follow, public reasoning. And uh, Thales, by the way, the founder of philosophy, according to Aristotle, Thales was a theist. He believed there's a God who, who created this world for a purpose. Now, he's writing mm -hmm. in the 6th century BC, so it's not a highly articulated conception of the divine, the divine but it is um, a form of the philosophical theism. So philosophy is the attempt to answer the most fundamental questions of all using our human cognitive abilities, reason and observation and uh, rational discussion. And among those yeah. questions, yeah. I think the most fundamental is, uh, does God exist? And philosophers from the beginning have sought to answer that question. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what, what was the fundamental question Thales posed? And, and how did he specifically answer it? Okay, that's very good. The, uh, the first philosophical question on record is uh, known as the, or actually problem, I guess, is known as the problem of the one and the many. And it is the observation that the world contains many diverse things. It contains thoughts, love, happiness, joy, evil, rocks, stones, mountains, people. It contains this vast diversity. What holds it all together and makes this a universe rather than a multiverse? holds the whole thing into one system. That's called the problem of the one and the many, and we find it both in the East and in the West, and we find it among uh, asked, asked among the greatest thinkers and scientists of history. And Thales and most of the ancient Greek philosophers concluded um, that there must be a presiding intelligence that holds this world together and makes it a one rather than a many. In other words, makes it a rational, rationally intelligible whole rather than a chaos that can't be made sense of. Of course, if the world, yeah. if the universe was a complete chaos, we wouldn't, intelligent beings wouldn't exist. But, but uh, anyway, Heraclitus and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Thales and all the great thinkers among the ancient Greeks concluded that this world cannot be the result of a of random chance or an accident, but must be the work of a of an intelligence. The same thing Einstein concluded. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah, let, let me ask, uh, sort of step out of the book for, for a moment, because you're writing the book with 19-year-olds mm-hmm. in mind. Uh, do you find over, over your teaching career that the, the interest 19-year-olds have in these kinds of questions about life and, and God and chaos or order or unity or, or fragmentation, do you find their interest in these questions goes up and down? Or is it is it sustained in, in some way? You mean over the course of my career? The students are always yeah. interested in these questions. And every quarter, they ask, some students ask really interesting, intelligent questions, and they come up with really interesting responses. I know young young college students are are very they have very active minds and they're interested in fundamental questions. What I what I um, I've C- found consistently over, consistently yeah consistently yeah what I have found yeah. that is that today uh, well I teach in a secular you know public community college but what I found yeah. today is that many I'd say more than half of the students in my classes come into philosophy class thinking that science is our only path to truth and that science is the only discipline that gives us real truth, real knowledge about the world. And philosophers have a consensus on this. Philosophers all agree that that view called scientism, called scientism is demonstrably false. Um, Science can't be our only path to truth because the claim that science is our only path to truth is a claim that is not itself proven by science. It cannot be proven valid by science. The only method it claims is the uh, method to the only method to find truth. Uh, no scientific experiment proves that science is the only path to truth. And uh, no one thinks there will ever be a scientific experiment that proves it. So. Scientism, the claim that science is the only path to truth, is false by its own criterion of truth. Hmm. So that's a common view among college students today. And I and almost every philosopher I know uh, tries to uh, show that that's a self-contradictory view. Yeah. That's a barrier to religious... Yeah. You turn to Socrates and you, you identify... One of the great innovations of Socrates was not the content, not only the content of his ideas, but the method, a method of thought, you, you call it. And, and you have a little discussion of the death of Socrates. What is the primary lesson that students should draw from the death of Socrates? Uh, that uh, authoritarian governments don't want people to think critically. Socrates was known in Athens as an individual who went around and urged people to question their fundamental beliefs and values on the basis of rational standards related to truth, with truth understood as correspondence with reality. And 
uh, he caused, he, he uh, questioned powerful people, generals and politicians and wealthy businessmen and others to uh, answer questions and question their own values and actions. And many people hated him for that. Yeah. And that's a story we see repeated again and again. What was Socrates' experience of the Parthenon, which you discussed? How how did did he interpret what, what he saw at the Parthenon? Well, Socrates was a very religious individual, first of all. Um, and although people at the Parthenon were, a lot of people were, well, a lot of people were worshiping many different gods, of course, but by the time of Socrates' life, actually most educated Greeks were monotheists, and Socrates himself was a monotheist. He believed there's one supreme God, and, but he did engage in the rituals of his society, thinking that that may be the most effective method to offer worship to God. But we, we know um, from his students that he gave arguments for one supreme God. And uh, he's a very religious man. I mentioned the Parthenon when I'm discussing Socrates' design argument, where he draws an analogy between the form, the structure of the universe and the structure of a building like the Parthenon. A beautiful temple has hundreds and thousands of parts all fitted together to serve an overall purpose. It's got windows, it's got doors, it's, it's got the frieze on top, it's got a roof, and all the parts fit together in an improbable way. And the whole thing functions, functions as a temple. And Socrates, um, it, well, Xenophon, one of Socrates' more famous students, uh, not as famous as his student Plato, but Xenophon uh, tells the story of Socrates arguing that the universe possesses a design. It has many, many parts, and they're all fitted together in a harmonious way to function. The, the water cycle interested Socrates as it did uh, Thales. Uh, the, the universe is this system. It's not a random chaos. And w- when we look at the plan of a city, when we look at the plan of a building, the architecture of a beautiful temple, and when we look at the notes of a song, we see harmony. We see parts fitted together in a harmonious way to function. And Socrates thought the universe betrays the same structure, parts fitted together to function in a harmonious way. So uh, the psalmist said, you know, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And and Socrates, even though he wasn't part of the Hebrew tradition uh, or wasn't even aware of it, he said something similar, but as the conclusion of a rational philosophical argument. Yeah. You know, given the amount of chaos that young people grow up in today, mm-hmm. are the students quite receptive to the argument from design, that there is some design, some purpose, some order underlying it all? Uh, most of the students <laughs> are very 
receptive. There's some students uh, are hostile to the idea, um, but most students are receptive. Some students, uh, of course, raised in religious households are agree right away. Uh, some students change their mind in the course and tell me, you know, I never really saw this world this way, but yes, it does seem to be uh, the product of some kind of intelligence. It doesn't look random at all when you think about it, even scientifically. Some students say science has explained it all. And the scientific theory that they explains all the order of the world is the theory of natural selection. So some students will just say evolution has explained why it's orderly. Yeah. And that's why in chapter five, we, we look at that claim and consider, does the theory of evolution explain the order we find around us? I argue that it does not. Yeah. Yeah. What is the multiverse hypothesis? Well, that's a really good question. Tough one. Uh, the multiverse, the idea of a multiverse originated in physics, nuclear physics in the 1950s, whoever it was the first to propose the theory. Uh, you see, uh, philosophers beginning in about the 1960s and physicists began talking about the fact that the universe's structure is the result of the numbers in certain equations that describe the fundamental characteristics of the atom and of the forces of nature. And beginning in the 1960s, physicists and philosophers began noting that the, uh, the characteristics of the subatomic particles, the characteristics of the forces of nature, the strong force, the weak force, the force of gravity and electromagnetism, seem to have been fine-tuned to a very, to an astonishingly high degree. That is to say, these numbers in these equations that describe the fundamental characteristics of the universe at the atomic level, these numbers are such that if they had been slightly different by an amazingly small amount, the universe would have no structure, there would be no stars, no process of evolution, no life, no intelligent life in any form, in any form. And so these hmm. numbers that describe the universe at the atomic level could have been different, but they're just right for a universe full of evolution and intelligent life. And it looks like uh, it's either an amazing coincidence or it's the product of design. Was it, it was meant that way. And, and by, by amazing coincidence, we're talking like, like one, one chance in billions, correct? Well, yeah, there's, is, there's, is, it at, is it that high? Well, I mean, there's, there, yeah, it's, there, there's it's around, not one in five. Yeah, there, there are around 50 different constants that describe the basic atomic structure of the universe. And each one is fine-tuned to one part in trillions and trillions. <laughs> so I use an, okay. the analogy yeah. I, I use in my book in chapter five. Imagine you walk into a room and it's a, a, a giant pizza machine. It has 50 dials 
And if you feed raw ingredients in one side of this machine, the other side will produce perfectly formed pizzas. But there's about 50 dials and each one has to be set. And the tolerance is extremely small. Each dial has to be set within a millionth of an inch to the right number. Uh, there's a dial for water. There's a dial for temperature and so forth. So you've, the ingredients go in and out come perfectly formed pizzas. Now, if, if what's the, is it reasonable to believe that the dials were set by pure random chance? that all 50 dials were lined up by pure random chance. If you walked into the room and someone said those dials were set by the wind and by, by random forces of nature, it would just not be believable. That's just too big of a coincidence to be believable. It's yeah. much more reasonable to suppose the dials were set by an intelligence who intended to make pizzas. And the universe is somewhat like that. We've got something like 50 different fundamental constants in the equations that describe the universe at the fundamental atomic level. And these num the numbers in the equations could have been vastly different, but they're set at a spot that together they produce a universe with a process of evolution that leads to intelligent life forming. And without... There we are. Yeah, and it just seems, I argue that it's reasonable. Now, here's where the multiverse comes in. Uh, a group of scientists said, yes, if you look at the universe, it, it does look designed. Um, it's an in, too big of a coincidence. But what if we suppose that our universe is just one universe out of an infinity of universes, each with a different setup, each with cons fundamental constants set to different values randomly? Out of an infinity of different universes, each with its fundamental constants set to different values by random chance, in other words, imagine an infinite number of roulette wheels rotating randomly, uh, there's bound to be a universe like this one by random chance. And lucky enough, we're in it. And that's called the multiverse hypothesis. So a multiverse would then be a collection of universes like ours, infinite to an extent, with each universe randomly different. And I, I heard Andre Linda once uh, give an argument for this view uh, at a national, so uh, at a science conference. And uh, he, he said, uh, the only way to avoid believing in God and inferring God's existence from the structure of physics is to suppose this is one random universe out of an infinity of random universes. And he said, therefore, uh, every possibility is realized in some universe for you and for each person in the room. So there's a universe where you uh, uh, started World War II there's a universe where you, uh, you know, did terrible things. There's a universe where uh, you, uh, you know, just think of anything you can imagine doing or having done. There's a universe where you did that. And anyway, the problem with the multiverse hypothesis, first of all, it's, it's not scientific. It can't be proven by science because the other universes are posited as separate space-time systems that can't be 
reached by this system. No signals can pass between the different universes. So it's, it's not a scientific hypothesis. It can't be established by science, can't even be tested by science. And the other thing is that the multiverse hypothesis needs a multiverse generator, a multiverse creator that creates all these infinite universes. And third, the problem is that uh, the multiverse generator needs to be fine-tuned because if it only produces one kind of universe, then we're back to why is it producing one that's fit for life? And... The multiverse hypothesis is that it produces lots of universes fit for life to make it highly probable that uh, we're in one. And uh, the multiverse, when you dig into it deeply, uh, requires some kind of creator and it requires some kind of fine tuning anyway. And uh, Mm -hmm. theism, the belief that there's a God who created this world on purpose, is simpler And so we go to Occam's razor, the principle that uh, we should (laughs) shave our explanations down to the minimum and explain phenomena with the least number of uh, positive entities possible, uh, urges us to accept theism over the multiverse, because theism is a much simpler way to explain the complexity of this universe at the atomic level. Yeah. Let's shift from from the ontological to the moral. Mm. Uh, you, you bring up in the book the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. How do you approach the problem of evil with, uh, with with these students who, oh, I imagine a lot of them come into class thinking that uh, there is no such thing as objective evil in, in the universe. But uh, what, what, how, how, how do you get into this with the book and your teaching, maybe I should say? Well, I thank you. I, well, I do take the problem of evil seriously. I think everyone should the the world does contain evil um there are the i mean we have the america has sins in its past of course slavery and uh each of the other civilizations around the world has sins in its past um for instance uh the uh between 12 and 18 million slaves were taken from africa to the middle east uh in the uh Arab slave trade, also called the Muslim slave trade. Every civilization has sins in its past. Evil is a real thing. Um, What Hitler did in the 1940s, what Stalin did in the 1930s, uh, these are terrible, terrible evils. And why would this universe contain evils if it's made by a good God? And I I take that question seriously. The... uh, Problem of evil, by the way, Mark, is directed at Christians and Jews and Muslims and anyone who believes that God is good. If you don't believe that there's a good God, then the problem of evil is, is doesn't really arise as an objection to believing in God. But I, mm-hmm. in my chapter, I canvass three different solutions. One is Augustine's uh, solution the free will theodicy, his answer to the question, why does why would God being good allow evil? And I, I look at Irenaeus's uh, soul-making theodicy, and then I look at the, the view of the philosophers called skeptical theists. And so there's three different proposed solutions to the problem of evil. There's much more. 
in in the book covered. It goes up into the the well into the twentieth century with John Rawls and Robert Nozick and and others. But uh, for now, the title of the book is Philosophy, Reason, Belief, and Faith: An Introduction. Professor Herrick, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.